You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I did not think it could be done, not with satellite technology, not with night vision goggles, not with genetic testing. I did not think it was possible to locate a group of people for whom I could feel more contempt and less sympathy than I did for anti-vaxxers who got COVID and died or never-never Trumpers who looked at January 6th and thought, let's have four more years of that. Or people who sit next to me on airplanes and try to strike up conversations. Actually, in all honesty, I do feel some small degree of sympathy for people who get stuck sitting next to me on airplanes. But dead anti-vaxxers, live never-never Trumpers, only contempt, no sympathy. But Hemant Mehta might have done it. He found a group of people that I could and did, at least for a minute, hold in more contempt and feel less sympathy for than dead anti-vaxxers or live never-never Trumpers. I don't check in often on Religion News Service, America's leading provider of news about faith since 1934, but Meta, aka the Friendly Atheist, he does. He reads Religion News Service, so I don't have to. And earlier this month on Only Sky, a secular humanist news site I do read, Meta highlighted a piece by Riley Farrell at RNS about evangelical Christian furries who are afraid of being outed, not to their evangelical Christian friends as furries, but to their furry friends as anti-gay evangelical Christians. Riley writes at RNS, Christian furries interviewed for this story, including leaders of the group that calls itself the Christian Furry Fellowship, asked to be anonymous, fearing, quote, doxing from within the largely secular furry community for their Christian identity. My furry friendships are a blessing, said one CFF organizer that Riley spoke with. Somebody with a red fox fursona who asked to be called F, and F wants to bring knowledge of the Lord, Riley writes, to furry fandom. First, is there anyone on earth who does not have at least a passing familiarity with this Jesus person we've heard so very much about for 2,000 fucking years? And is there any place we can go where a certain kind of religious person, not all of you religious people, I'm talking about a certain type, you know the type I'm talking about, the type of Christian who gets up on airplanes and preaches. Is there any place we can go where that kind of God-bothering religious creep doesn't feel entitled to pester other people about their imaginary friends, not even furry conventions? And second, reading this piece, we're supposed to feel sorry for evangelical furries who live in fear of being judged and shamed and rejected and on account of those fears have to hide who they are? Imagine that. Imagine having to hide who you are from the people in your life who feel like family because they wouldn't understand, because they would judge you or throw you out or disown you or discard you. Why, that sounds almost as painful as being a gay or lesbian or bi or trans kid growing up in an evangelical family. If I may address the self-pitying members of the Christian Furry Fellowship, 
which again is an actual organization with an actual website, furryfellowship.org. That is again, the organization dedicated to evangelizing the furry community and converting other furries to evangelical Christianity. And I guess turning okay with gay furries and okay being gay furries into anti-gay furries and self-hating gay furries. Listen, you fur-suited shits, you hairy turds. Do you realize that the current sex panic your fellow right-wing evangelicals are stirring up, all this shit about groomers? They're not just whipping up the rubes and the haters with bullshit about gay people and trans people. They're coming for your hairy asses too. Right-wing lunatics with power, elected officials, keep bringing up schools that aren't real, where teachers that they made up are putting litter boxes in classrooms that don't exist so children who aren't real, who identify as cats, can go to the toilet in those imaginary litter boxes. I am not making this up. Nancy, roll the tape. I'm a little shocked, I guess is what I would put it. It's called something called furries. If you don't know what furries are, it's where school children dress up as animals, cats or dogs, during the school day. They meow and they bark, and they interact with their school, with the teachers in that in this fashion. And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? That's not some lunatic shouting on a street corner. That is an elected Republican official in the state of Nebraska, State Senator Bruce Bosselman, during a televised debate in the Nebraska State Senate about school funding earlier this year. And it's working. The Daily Beast reports that parents have been showing up at school board meetings across the country all year long in a white-hot panic about furries in schools grooming their kids. Look, evangelical furries, you have a problem, and it's not the gays. People who hate gays and lesbians, they think you're a bunch of perverts too. And unlike me, they use pervert as an insult. Look, I get the impulse. You want them, your fellow evangelical conservative Republican Christians, you want them to make an exception for you. You're like swingers in red states with Trump flags on their golf carts or log cabin Republicans who think wearing a tie and voting for the same assholes mommy and daddy do will persuade people to overlook cocksucking when they do it. They're not going to make an exception for log cabin cocksuckers, and they're not going to make an exception for you, Jesus furries. Recognize who your real enemies are. They're not gays in fursuits at the cons. They're assholes sitting next to you in the pews. All right, we usually end the show with some listener tweets, but I wanted to drop this short thread posted to Twitter by a Lovecast listener here at the top of the show. Friend of DeSoto tweets, responding to the trilingual woman on the podcast, you gave our country, the United States, some well-deserved side-eye about how monolingual we are compared to other countries. Just want to point out that what I said, he's quoting me here, very few Americans speak another language besides English isn't accurate, Dan. 13% of our population, more than one in eight Americans speak Spanish. That's not very few. It's over 40 million people. And overall, one in five of us are multilingual. Let's not downplay our diversity. Diversity, the performatively aggrieved Karens and Brads out there would fully erase if they could. 
That is a great point, friend of DeSoto. We have a lot more linguistic diversity in the United States than I made it sound like in that uh, response to that woman who was feeling self-conscious about doing dirty talk in her mother tongue. And listening to those responses to that particular caller's concerns made us think about how much we kind of wanted to hear some dirty talk in languages other than English. So if you speak a language in addition to English, record yourself doing 10 to 30 seconds of dirty talk for us. Let us hear it in your native language. We'll share the best, dirtiest, and sexiest sounding clips on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast. Use that voice memo app on your phone and email us your dirty talk at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And some good news on the monkeypox front. While it's still spreading, we have a better handle on how it's spread sexually, almost exclusively. And it's almost exclusively appearing in men who have sex with men, more than 96% of cases. It's not spreading, we now know, through casual contact, not spreading via surfaces, not spreading from people brushing up against each other in bars or clubs or breathing on each other, which means, my fellow gays, going to events, going out to the bars, keeping your clothes on, it's safe. I skipped some events earlier this summer myself to be on the safe side, but now, knowing what we know now, I'm going to be going to a big gay street party in a few weeks. We can gather safely, and as more of us get vaccinated, we'll be able to play again safely too. All right, coming up on the micro, Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savage.love, Catherine D., a thought leader in the sex negativity movement, joins me for a hyper-polite conversation. And giving up porn for a partner is one thing, but giving up porn for a partner who thinks anything can be porn, that's another thing altogether. Read all about it this week in Savage Love, which you can find at savage.love slash savagelove. All right, let's get to the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old lesbian. I've been with my girlfriend for two years. We've lived together for one year. The other day, she basically came in to the room and said that she had reread like a super old sexting conversation she had with somebody and that apparently two years ago we'd had a conversation about that kind of situation and I had said that was basically cheating. I don't remember this conversation but that sounds like something I would have said two years ago. Um, we haven't talked about it since and I was kind of like well you know now that I think about it I'm I feel a little weird about it but I I guess it's not so different from you just thinking about a previous experience. And I mean, she wasn't, you know, jerking off or anything and reading it. She was like kind of read it and was kind of missing that part of her past. Um, and then she said, you know, she didn't know really if monogamy was something she wanted to do forever. But that seemed like that was, she would have to be monogamous to be with me. There's also a conversation we had a while ago. And I said, well, you know, I, I think at this point um, where I'm at right now is I'm okay with you having sex with other people, but not like having a whole other girlfriend. And this kind of surprised her and we kind of left at that. And then I went to go take a bath and she came in to tell me that she read the sexting conversation again. And at that point I was a little upset because we just had a conversation about it. Right. I did say I felt weird about it, but you know, I wasn't going to get mad and, you know, cause a whole fuss about it, but just, you know, I felt weird and that was that. I think I'm more upset that she came in and kind of interrupted my personal alone time to unburden herself with her guilt. And she's obviously having a lot of questions about our relationship. And I 
feel like I'm being tested almost by her doing these things and asking these questions and then being surprised by my response that I've changed, you know, since two years ago when we started dating. I don't really know how to move forward. The other time I tried to talk about it, just kind of brushed it off. So I don't know if you have any advice. I'm not convinced your girlfriend was trying to unburden herself by initiating both of these conversations uh, with this sex messaging conversation she'd had with someone else a couple of years ago. Uh, twice. She initiated that conversation twice. I, uh, I don't think freeing herself from the guilt is what she was trying to do. She was obviously wanting to talk about this and was using these old sex messages as the jumping off point. And you thought the conversation was over and obviously she wasn't done having this conversation yet. And so she came back into the room and perhaps out of a feeling of awkwardness, reinitiated the conversation with the same spark, the same inciting incident. And that annoyed you. Not so much that she wanted to have that conversation again, but that she was so impatient to continue having that conversation that she would interrupt your alone time in the bath. Okay, it's really good for, I think, monogamy to be opt-in. It's really good for that to be a conversation that a couple, the longer they're together, can revisit and seems to me, if I may, you know, armchair psychoanalyze your girlfriend seems really clear that she was, I don't want to say weaponizing, instrumentalizing that old sex conversation so that you guys could have this discussion again about whether or not you're going to be monogamous. It could also be that this is an opportunity that she passed on a couple of years ago because you wanted monogamy and she was willing to be monogamous, if that was the price of admission, to be with you. And she was perhaps seeking your okay to pursue not this other woman as a girlfriend, potentially. You've made it clear you don't want other girlfriends, you don't want sister wives, but as a potential hookup, one-off, friend with benefits, Obviously, she's not, obviously, I keep saying obviously, I apologize. It's obviously annoying if I say obviously all the time. She's going to keep bringing this up or she brought this up not randomly. You know, she brought up the text messages, read them to you in what seemed like playful. She was shipping that under something playful. And then you had this deeper conversation, which is probably the conversations she wanted to have. And then she bursts back in when you're trying to take a bath and enjoy some alone time to tell you that she just reread it? Yeah, I, you know, if a boyfriend or husband did something similar, not that it would annoy me, I, I would not be annoyed by that. I would think, oh yeah, like clearly you're thinking about that guy and you wished you'd gotten with that guy then. And so I think your girlfriend wishes she'd gotten with her then. It wasn't okay with you then. If it's okay with you now, Maybe you go to her and say that. Look, you want to hook up with that girl? Is that why you keep bringing this up? Hook up with that girl. But of course, if it's not okay with you to hook up, for her to hook up with that girl, then obviously, 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 you shouldn't go in there and tell her it's okay. I think you're not done, or at least your girlfriend's not done, having this conversation. And so go have it. Go initiate that conversation yourself or brace yourself for the third time. She starts reading aloud from these sex messages, these old sex messages to you. Hey, Dan, Magnum subscriber, 41-year-old cis East Coast city person calling about another. 
One of my best friends has been dating a man for a year, and she's been really happy. She has shared that he was a recovering sex addict in a 12-step program working on problems with cheating. She's a monogamist and needs to be in a mono relationship. To me, someone with his history needs to just understand who he is and not fuck up everyone's lives all the time by entering any mono commitments. I didn't want to entirely project my pro-non-monogamy attraction to super honest and communicative people onto her life, so I made sure to kind of shut up about that opinion after it was known and kind of obvious. Regardless, I do call bullshit on sex addiction cover-ups for people who weave elaborate lies actively destroying other people's lives. He relapsed in the winter and they stopped talking for a minute while he got help. She's been really happy in the relationship since and I've met the guy a couple times, liked him, thought she seemed so much herself with him and was into it. Fast forward to last night, I opened Facebook, saw a photo of a lovely acquaintance friend of mine with a photo I was hoping to hell was with his doppelganger captioned with my man. My heart sank and I needed to verify it was him before I broke my friend's heart. I texted this pal, who's your sweetheart? Hoping she'd say Joe, and I'd be like, cute photo of you and Joe. But of course she gave my friend's mono partner's name. I had to be the person who broke my friend's heart. She's fucked up about it, of course, and it's fresh. The other pal unsolicitedly told me that they too were in a supposedly mono partnership, taking trips together, this kind of stuff. And the timeline is the exact same this whole past year as my friends. She shared with me verbatim what my friend has told me. He has said, you're the first person I've ever been with where I don't want to be with anyone else. Dan, I don't want to pile on her pain and it's not my place to tell people what to do. Both me and her housemate have made it clear we think she needs to stop talking with him. I've known her for almost 20 years and am looking out for her knowing what I think she needs to feel happy. When I asked her how a chat with a trusted friend of hers went today, she responded saying she's not yet in the position to make a decision about the dude. I told her I don't want to pile it on while she is just putting one foot in front of the other, but that maybe I can share a couple bits that may help her calculate. She didn't want to hear things the other person told me. Understandable while she is still trying to feel functional, but she said stopping talking with him for the time being is the next step. How do I tell her that she needs to stop talking to him as this step? And do I have more of a moral obligation to share that he was conducting two simultaneous bullshit mono relationships with the same script? Or to her desires to not hear what the other person had to say? You should tell your friend, look, you cannot hear it. You cannot listen to the things that I have to tell you, things that I think you should know. Or you can complain to me about your relationship, but not both. Look, this guy's an asshole. I think your friend should stop talking with him, if only because he was so clearly trying to manipulate her. Oh, I'm the victim. I am a sex addict. Oh, oh, I am a victim of my very own dick. No, no. Sex addiction ain't really a thing. This guy is an asshole and a player as they used to say, and a scumbag. Not that your friend can't be with and be the primary partner or the concurrent partner of a lying, manipulative asshole who's attempting to leverage women's sympathies by claiming to be a a sex addict so that, you know, when he relapses, it's not a choice he made to do something with his dick. It was, you know, he was defenseless in the 
face of this powerful chemical addiction he has to fucking around. Ugh. Yeah, obviously I'm frustrated with this guy. Fuck this guy. But if your friend wants to be with him, you know, she could construct a rationalization, a narrative. She could change her position on monogamy and be in an open or polyamorous relationship with this guy. But you know what? Even that's not going to work because he's not interested in an honest, open, ethically non-monogamous relationship. On some level, someone who plays these kinds of games gets off on the deceit, on the risk he's taking, not with and for himself and you know, not the risk he's running of getting hurt himself, but the risk he's putting other people in of being terribly, terribly hurt by him. That's not a bug that is off the feature, not a feature, that is the feature. Where your friend is right now, the pain she's in right now, intentionally inflicted. That's where he wanted her eventually all along. He manipulated her into this position. He threw her into the bathtub full of razor blades knowingly and on purpose, not because he's an addict and he's so sorry and he had a erection relapse that lasted the entirety of the time they've been together in this relationship, but because he is an asshole and she should stop talking to him and stop fucking him and stop dating him and block him on all the social media platforms and block his number too. Maybe if your friend doesn't want to hear it from you, she would be open to conversing with your friend, not a mutual friend, a friend of yours who also happened to be dating this guy. Maybe you could share that person's phone number with your friend, of course, with that person's consent. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis woman in a relationship with a cis man. We've been together for eight years. Sex is fantastic, mostly because we prioritize connection and play and pleasure rather than penetration or orgasms, though we have plenty of both. My partner lasts a long time and only really comes inside me about a third of the time, or he comes with his own hand, like after, throughout, like we do lots of different activities throughout sex and then that's often how he finishes or uh, some of the time he doesn't finish at all and that's also fine. So about half of the time that we do P and V sex, uh, he outlasts both my own orgasm and the lube, which means that we stop things inside of me and he will finish outside of me or not at all. And all of this is great, except that we've decided that we want to have a kid we want to conceive it like you know with sex that includes him coming inside of me and i'm worried that the emphasis on that specific thing is going to put so much pressure on him and on that specific kind of sex that it's instantly going to become less fun and less possible because the added pressure makes it harder so i am looking for suggestions on Either how to like really eroticize this and make it much more playful or perhaps like maybe some technical advice about either trying to get lube to last longer or like, I don't know, thinking about how to get his cum inside of me in a different way <laughs> or 
I don't know. Is this just inevitably going to get weird and annoying? Is subpar sex just an inevitable sacrifice of trying to conceive? I think the longer it takes you to conceive, the greater the risk of subpar sex becomes. You know, at first you're trying to conceive, and not that I have any personal experience in this, but talking to my friends in opposite sex relationships who wanted to conceive, first you're excited about this adventure. You've, you know, thrown away the condom, stopped taking the pill. You're going to try to make a baby, and just that is exciting. And then, you know, if it takes a while, it does become a bit of a chore. How do you push back against that? Well, I think you keep the sex fun. You try to keep the sex playful. You also accept that sometimes, you know, you're going to be ovulating. It's going to be the right time for you to have some hot, sticky spunk blown inside you. And he's going to have to come through. You say that about a third of the time he doesn't come. Uh, lube gets tacky. And, and what do you do uh, to make lube last longer? You reapply the lube. You also experiment with different kinds of lube, but reapply it. You can put more on. It's not like you get one shot with the lube and then you're literally stuck. You can pull his dick out, not even all the way out. You can pull it part of the way out and drizzle lube on it like catch up on a hot dog at a hot dog stand and he can push it back in. Dry tacky lube problem solved. And about a one third of the time you say he doesn't come. Well, if he can reliably finish himself those times when, you know, you're done, you're done being fucked or the, you know, even reapplying the lube isn't going to make you want to continue on with the PIV. If he can jack off, if he can get himself to the point of, orgasmic, say it with me, everybody, orgasmic inevitability. I love that expression. He can get himself there. And then at the very last second, as he's beginning to have his orgasm, push back, not push back, hopefully be welcomed back inside you and get that semen as close to your egg or eggs, you never know, as possible. And as for keeping it fun, well, what turns you guys on? Does orgasm control turn you on? Is he a little bit of a sub? Can you order him around? Can you tell him when he needs to come through? I answered a question very similar to this in the column recently, and I suggested come control, that if you're not ovulating, then he doesn't get to come. Some people who know better about conception pointed out that, you know, you want the freshest possible semen. You don't want sperm cells that have been lingering in his balls for too long. So not letting him come for two or three weeks until you're ovulating, not the greatest idea. So you can have him clearing the pipes. You can be ordering him to come and only letting him come inside you when you want him to come inside you. You can play with that kind of power and control. If he's aroused by the idea of impregnation, of putting his seed in you, you can incorporate that into dirty talk. You ask for other ways to get that come inside you. You can do it the way the lesbians used to do it with the Dixie cups and the turkey basters. He's going to have a wank or if you're not feeling like sex, but you'd like to not see that sperm go to waste. Or even if you just want to like role play as dykes while you're having sex intended for conception and keep it outer coursey. Both of you, you using a vibrator, him using his own right hand or an insertion toy designed for his dick to be inserted into and at the very last minute into the turkey baster and then into you. You can get creative. 
Except though, that it might become a little bit of a chore and that's okay. And just because sex becomes a chore while the goal is conception doesn't mean sex will be a chore post-conception. Hey, Dan. So I have a very good friend who was in my wedding and we know from our 20s, she and I had a really good time when we were younger. And then we got older. I moved back to the States. I got married, had a couple kids. She got married, had a couple kids. And I know that she has a history of pretty traumatic childhood stuff. She had a lot of sexual abuse. And the French guy who she married is loving and wonderful. And I thought it was all good. But in the past years, my friend has just kind of fallen into very, very serious alcoholism. And when she was pregnant, she was sober. So for, you know, the year she was having her kids, she was pretty sober. And as she's gotten more overwhelmed she's just drunk all the time and she lives really really far away and I've you know I had a conversation with her and I've sent some letters and the last time I saw her was at a mutual friend's wedding pre-pandemic and her husband just didn't seem to care that she was falling down and everyone else was just kind of horrified because she was a wreck and it was a wedding and everyone was drunk right but like she was beyond beyond And so a mutual friend of ours saw her last week and then texted and called me and said, something's really wrong. She's so drunk. What do we do? What do I say? And I I had to say to him, like, I've said everything. I don't know what to do. And the worst case scenario would be, I guess, her husband leaves her and takes the kids. But if she's that drunk, maybe her husband should leave her and take the kids. I I don't know. But then all I have, all these kind of like flashbacks of her husband just not caring at that wedding. And so maybe it's this abusive relationship all over again. So my question for you is, do I say something to her again, even though I've said things and she kind of brushes me off or do I let it go? Should I reach out to her husband who I'm friends with? I've known for years, but I'm not super close with. I don't want to put a bomb in her life, right? Because she lives very far away and she's just wholly dependent on this guy. But at the same time, I really care about her and I think about her and she calls all the time and I don't see the call anymore because she's always blackout drunk when she calls. You can't know what's going on in your friend's marriage. You say that you were at a wedding and your friend was falling down drunk and her husband didn't seem to notice or didn't seem concerned. Possible he didn't notice. Possible he doesn't give a flying fuck. Also possible that he is screaming and yelling and begging her to stop abusing alcohol privately, but didn't do that at the wedding, didn't turn someone else's wedding into the intervention that his wife so clearly needs. Seems to me that you've already lost your friend to alcohol abuse, and so you risk nothing reaching out to the husband, you risk nothing reaching out to her. If you can afford it, you risk nothing getting on an airplane and flying to where she is and linking arms with her husband and staging and participating in an intervention to try to get her into rehab, to try to get her to see that she needs help. You know, people who are alcoholics hit bottom And eventually realize they're going to have to stop drinking or they're going to die. 
you say that your friend and her husband have a couple of kids. I'm concerned for those kids. Is she, if she's blackout drunk all the time, able to parent? Is she a danger to her own children? Again, you risk nothing. It sounds like the relationship is already drowned. It's already dead. It's already been swept away uh, with an ocean of alcohol. And so the relationship really isn't at stake here. It's your conscience that's at stake here. If you don't say something, if you don't say more than you've already said, if you hesitate to reach out to the husband and say, look, everybody sees this. You must see this too. What are you doing about this? How can I help? Is there something that I can do from here to help you? And I feel you. I feel your pain, that helpless feeling as you stand there and watch someone you love drink themselves to death. She's an adult. She can make her own choices. Hopefully her husband is going to stand by and do nothing if she's making choices that endanger their children. But you have to say your piece. And that's all you can do. And once you've said your piece, once you've screamed, yelled, intervened, it's out of your hands. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a queer man, 30 years old, single currently, and dating-ish. I have a question. I have a weird situation. So about five, six years ago, I had a hookup with this guy and a few sort of dates. He's a friend of some of my friends, and he used to work in the um, city where I used to live in at the time, He's just a really great guy. And he basically, we had a hookup in the sense that we had an amazing tantra session. He gave me one of the best massages I have had in my whole entire life. And that was the best non-penetrative sex I have had in my whole entire life. So mind-blowingly amazing that my whole entire life after that sexual encounter, I'm comparing every other sexual encounter to that sexual encounter. (laughs) Basically, he's a great guy. He's really smart. He's like everything I'm looking for in a guy. Super sensitive. It's just fucking dreamboat. After we hooked up, I did sort of like cross my mind to ask him, like, are you dating anyone? Like, are you single? He said he's in a relationship. I was like, uh, like exclusive. He said, yes. And I said, well, what would, what do we just do? He said, well, it wasn't penetration. So technically it was not cheating. I'm like, okay. So. Some of my friends told me this, that he goes out of his way to comfort me in social situations. Like he he stands up and gives me his seat. He wants to give me his seat. And I didn't even notice that at one point. And then he, I don't know, he's just, he talks about me in really great ways and how he admires me and likes me. And and I admire and like him too. I'm just not so vocal about it because I want to respect and honor the relationship that they have and so now he's in the city where i'm at right now in different city different country everything he's there with his partner and he wants me like we went for dinner last night and i just feel like there's a heavy burden laying in my heart that i want to tell him and i know the answer but still it's hard and i don't know what to do Not cheating on a technicality doesn't sound like dreamboat behavior to me. Now, maybe he has an agreement with his primary partner, this guy that you've had this crush on for such a long time. 
that you've been infatuated with for such a long time, maybe as an agreement, an explicit agreement with his partner that non-penetrative sex isn't cheating. And so technically it may be a sexual experience what you two shared, but it's not cheating by the rules laid down in his relationship with his partner who he presumably cares about. But if he's running around doing things that he wouldn't want his partner to know about, tiptoeing up to the line, cheating, but technically not cheating, rationalizing what his partner would regard as cheating or as an infidelity. If it wasn't cheating, if his partner was fine with it, then his partner could know about it. Basically, if his partner walked into the room and saw you and him doing whatever it was, the tantra stuff that you and he did, would his partner be upset? And if the answer is yes, then technically... I would think that was cheating and I would not, you know, maybe I could have a crush on somebody who was engaged in the kinds of rationalizations that he's engaged in, but it would be, I don't know. It would be a hole in the dreamboat below the waterline or right at the waterline. It would be potentially a problem. All right. Well, what do you do? Well, I think you tell him how you feel. You tell him that, you know, obviously there's something between you two. You'd love to be brought in out of the cold. You were, you know, the first thing you asked him when he told you he's in a relationship was, are you exclusive? So there's a world in which you would totally be down from the very first moment that you guys talked after that very first tantric massage, you would be down to be his other boyfriend. Maybe you would be, I don't know what you think of his primary partner, maybe, or his partner, not primary partner. He's not open, not an open relationship. Maybe you'd be up for dating both of them, but you want more than he is willing or able to give you. And I think getting a definitive answer from him, even if that answer is no, and it's not possible, and I'm not going to renegotiate things with my partner. I can't, he would never agree. Or I asked recently and he's already, he said no again, or he, they don't want to be poly. They don't want to be open. And he's not willing to leave his partner for you to date you. If you and he together in some way, in any way is just not ever gonna be a possibility as painful as it would be for you to hear that. I think it would be helpful for you to hear that because right now, all these years, however long it's been, you've been kind of living in hope and enjoying whatever it is, the connection that you two have. He's constantly wanting to give you his seat with the understanding that you won't penetrate it. I don't think he's maliciously stringing you along. He may feel like he's just being nice and kind and affectionate with somebody that he liked and had a great experience with. But if those gestures of affection from him are preventing you from moving on or preventing you from really ever getting past him, then it's a problem. And if he knows, and sometimes people do know that that's the effect that they're you know, affections are having on someone that they can't be with, who wants to be with them, that it causes them to carry a torch eternally. Some people like to see guys carrying torches for them. Some people like to see lots of guys, torchlight parades of guys carrying torches for them. And that is another thing, if that's indeed what it is he's doing here, 
that would be another hole in the dreamboat right at the water line, in my opinion. But that may not be what he's doing here. He may not be acting selfishly or maliciously by teasing you, by causing you to carry that fucking torch. But if you know, if you hear from his own lips that it's impossible, that you guys could never be together and you haven't done this crazy tantra massage thing ever again either, I think that would be helpful. So yeah, go and tell him and brace yourself because you're probably not going to get the answer that you want. But I think it may be the answer you need. It may be what you need to hear so that you can extinguish that torch and go find some other guys. There are other guys out there who do that tantra massage woohoo stuff and have the six hour orgasms. He's not the only guy in the world with that particular skill set that blew your mind. If you weren't so obsessed with him, that energy, the energy that's fueling your obsession with him, you could plow that energy into finding other guys with that same skill set that you can have mind blowing sexual experiences with that won't cause you to forget this guy, but will help you get over this guy. Hey, Magnum subs joining me today. I have Catherine D a thought leader in what some have called and what D herself originally called the sex negativity movement, but you're not calling it that anymore, right? No. Um, I think sexual counter revolution, which was coined by my friend, Mary Harrington, is a much better term for it. <laughs> so what what are the contours of the sexual counter-revolution and why does it make me nervous that I might be dragged to a guillotine? So I think of it as the backlash to sex positivity. So there's a lot of writers, you know, who are emerging, who are talking about it, and they're talking about people's actual behaviors. So that's like Louise Perry, um, Mary Harrington, who I mentioned, Christine Emba, who you had as a guest. Um, but I talk about the conversation about it which is a little bit different, right? Like how the media is going to navigate this. Um, and I think for a long time, there, like sex positivity was the, the register, was the currency of the land when we talked about sex for most of the 2010s. And I, I see you sort of as a pioneer in that. You were the, the first, right? Or one of the first, at least. Yeah, I was never a thousand percent comfortable with the sex positivity movement. It really grew out of San Francisco, I had some deeply sex negative sort of impulses. I think you can suck too much dick. And I would tell gay men that all the time. <laughs> I'm telling gay men that right now. And I always said that I was, you know, if you were permissive about sex, it meant giving people permission to do what they wanted to do. Also to give them permission to not do what they didn't want to do to say no. And there is this strain in the sort of the sex positivity argument that everybody has to do be doing everything. And if everyone isn't doing everything, then that's shaming or you're sexually repressed in some way. And I don't feel like I ever bought into that, but I am associated with sex positivity because I am pro-sex and pro-sexual exploration and pro-people doing what they want to do. But that includes implicitly not doing what you don't want to do. That's, you know, and that's true. I'm a longtime reader, longtime listener. And you, you are respectful of people's boundaries, but you could be a little bit more critical of certain sex acts, fetishes, kinks. Um, and at least for me personally, that's where my disagreement comes in. Other people, of course, are a little bit more prudish. A lot of these these writers call themselves neo-prude, which I love. I think that's a really catchy, <laughs> catchy label for it. It's kind of like people calling themselves faggot in 1989, like reappropriating 
the hate term. Like, you're a prude. Okay, right. I'm a prude. I'm a (laughs) neo-prude. So what are the fetishes or kinks that I've been too quick to sign off on? You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm pretty, I, I have some big questions about BDSM. Actually, I, I think I wrote about this once. Like my first memory of college was getting into this fight with a woman who became um, my best friend. And she, she's a big fan of yours. And I was like, there's something wrong with you if you're into bondage. Like it's, it's reflective of some kind of dysfunction. And she was like, no, it's not. There's no proof of that. That's not what the science says. Or, you know, here's my little like Kinsey Institute report that I printed out. You know, <laughs> you do use, uh, I forget the phrase. It's something like, you know, Olympic sex or something. Varsity level. Right, right. You should, you should practice some caution, but I think it's even more than caution, right? Because if you tell people to practice caution, they're going to be like, oh, I'm cautious enough. You know, I think there should be a little bit of self-reflection. Like if you're having casual sex and, or you're having sex outside of a relationship or you're having sex within a relationship and these are the things that get you off, maybe, you know, you don't have to stop, but maybe you should just think about it for just a second. Well, I I definitely think people should think about their desires and interrogate them, which was the term of art about a decade ago that I uh, began slinging around myself. That said, you know, what we do know about kink is that kinks aren't chosen. Although people can acquire a taste. I've always said that there are two kinds of people you meet at big fetish events, particularly the gay ones. You meet the guys who were tying themselves up when they were 12 and you meet the guys who fell in love with those guys, right? <laughs> right. But those people are definitely out there. People who's uh, Jillian Keenan, who wrote uh, Sex with Shakespeare, I, b- I believe is the title, who describes herself as a spanko. And she's into spanking. And her argument is that kink is a sexual orientation. And she was aware of her fascination with spanking, desire for spanking, before she was aware of her sexual orientation. It was pre-puberty that that kicked in. And so, you know, if somebody was fascinated by bondage and tying themselves up at 12, am I to tell that person at 22? Well, because that can be dangerous because you could, you know, do nerve damage to yourself or a play partner. You just should never do that. I think it's more than like the physical danger. I mean, I also think people meme themselves into sexual interests uh, that wouldn't have otherwise been there with the, with the internet, with porn, Tumblr. I've been interviewing people every day for hours a day about their interest in sissy hypno. And I mean, that doesn't seem organic necessarily. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it's not organic. First of all, d- define sissy hypno really quickly and then let's talk about it. Forced feminization. So like either watching videos or listening to podcasts or, et- or audio files or whatever that basically condition you into becoming more and more feminine. And and usually it's uh, it's men who are listening to this, but I've spoken to a lot of women too, which is like really, really interesting. And I've also sort of been testing it on myself. I just like walk around Chicago listening to Sissy Hypno and I'm like, what is this going to do? Nothing yet, but we'll I, see. <laughs> I think it's forced feminization when you're talking about straight men and bimboification when it's women who are undergoing Sissy Hypno. I, mean, I think that's, it's fascinating. And Maybe it says something about how intrinsic or how hardwired into our sexuality now technology is. Used to be that people had their first sexual experiences, you know, between their ears, uh, self-pleasure, fantasizing. Now our first sexual experiences are mediated by technology and people grow up masturbating with their phones in their hands or sitting in front of computers. And so that relationship, that that merging of our sexual inner lives and our and eroticism with technology and then these like 
themes that predate all this technology, like forced feminization, which was a kink before the internet came along. I see for that those sissy uh, hypno ASMR tapes as vibing on a theme, a truism about human sexuality that predates this and, and speaking to people. That said, like, no, I get it. I get it. You look at choking and how ubiquitous choking has become. And however sex positive you are or I am, you have to acknowledge porn did that. Porn mainstreamed right. that practice. Porn created an interest or an expectation in people that wasn't there before porn made choking seem normative, desirable, pleasurable. And it's choking is an interesting example. I, I recently wrote this like this tome about how it wormed its way into a certain Tumblr subculture. Um, and so if people don't know, Tumblr was like a microblogging site. It was the most popular site among people ages 13 to 18 um, in 2013, I believe. Um, and then there, there was this basically a fashion subculture that, you know, they, they loved the book Lolita. And one of their heroes was Lana Del Rey, um, Nymphettes, right? Terrible name for a subculture for young girls, of course. And because there was so much porn on Tumblr, it choking kind of wormed its way into this subculture. And the subculture was really shaped by the different like pornographic inputs. And there's a lot of subcultures for young people that are like these weird abstractions of things that come from porn. And what do we do about that? I, I, you know, I, I listened to, is it Louise Perry who wrote The Case Against the Sexual Revolution? Yes. I, I've been listening to um, interviews. I read Rethinking Sex, uh, Christine Emba's book. I read Anna Srinivasan. Oh, Srinivasan, yeah. The Right yeah. to Sex. Uh, I, I'm tracking this. What is it that I need to learn from the counter-revolutionaries? Because when I listen to Louise Perry, I hear a lot of condemnation of kink, sexual exploration, I don't care what, if the counter-revolution is successful, it's going to look like, what our sex lives are going to look like. Oh, well, here, here's what I think they want it to look. Well, I don't know. I don't know what Christine really wants. I feel like she's maybe keeping it a little closer to the vest, right? I think she's more conservative than she lets on. But I would guess that Louise wants, um, you know, minimizing premarital sex. You know, stigmatizing casual sex is definitely one of them. Um, more sex segregation. Um, a, a lot of that is for safety reasons. Like, she, you know, she makes a pretty good point about why, you know, men and women shouldn't drink together, especially if, you know, they don't know one another. I mean, a lot of sexual violence comes after alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of them are things that, like, you know, like my old world boomer mother would think it's just like, you know, second nature. I mean, I think there's even deeper arguments about like restructuring the nature of the workplace where that's where you get the people like Mary Harrington, who's even more extreme than Louise. You have like Srinivasan, Emba, Perry, um, and then then way out there is Harrington, where you really get the, the meat of the, <laughs> just like, this is what the world should look like. Wait, wait, wait. The world should look like a Muslim culture, a Muslim society, where men and women don't socialize together, work together, drink together. I don't, I wouldn't say that. I don't think, I don't think it's that extreme. Maybe more like a more casual Orthodox Judaism or something is, is and this is just, this is my guess. I'm not, I'm not super in the weeds uh, with this specific worldview, but I do think they want it to be more more trad, if you will. And trad stands for traditional. Yes. And how do gay people factor into this? Because when people start stumping for traditional moral and sexual values. That's the elephant in the room. Um, and I'm not going to say, I don't, none of these women have said this. So I just want to be perfectly clear. I'm not putting words in anyone's mouths, but I think it would stand to reason if you follow the logic that 
you could go one of two ways, right? Like gay people conform to a very, you know, heteronormative style, which is some would argue has already happened, or they go back in the closet and become the counterculture. And this is just, no one has said this. This is just me saying like, there's two ways this can go, and this is my guess. You know, the existence of the religious right 40, 50 years ago would scream and yell about the emerging sort of publicly, openly gay uh, people and communities as terribly destabilizing because it would put into the heads of straight people that you could have sex for pleasure. And sex for pleasure was controversial um, up until the arrival of the pill and I think the emergence of openly gay communities would also put into the heads of straight people, when you, you, know, you go to a gay pride parade, you don't see one kind of gay person, you see all sorts of different kinds of gay people. And now all sorts of different kinds of queer people. And it really put into straight people's heads that why should there just be one way to be straight? And there has been this great, I think, cross-pollinization between gay and straight communities. And if the cost of getting straight people to be a little less shitty to each other is gay people being forced back into the closet? I'm not sure that's a price all these openly gay people are going to be willing to pay to get to get straight men to stop sexually assaulting straight women in bars. Ah! I think there's also probably another argument that a knock-on effect of this. And again, just need to just need to be clear for you know my my haters. These aren't my beliefs. These are what I see. This is what I see in the world. That you're observing and documenting the sexual right. counter revolution. You aren't. Right. <laughs> necessarily <laughs> arguing for it. I mean, I think that there's also this argument that gay people are no longer allowed to be gay um, and that there's been a vilification of same-sex attraction because like you have a lot of people who are like gender-conforming heterosexuals who are suddenly queer and then what queer means becomes so diluted um, that perhaps like tightening the reins a little bit for straight people and whipping them back into shape might actually make being gay about being gay again. And a lot of these arguments about are ultimately, you know, I read Emba's book and I read The Right to Sex, is that this kind of the hookup culture and the the world that the sex positivity movement helped to create hasn't been a pleasant one for a lot of women. That a lot of women are out there hooking up, consenting to sex, having bad sex, and there are regrets. And what I don't understand is like, how do you construct guardrails? Or is the demand to construct guardrails to prevent people from consenting to sex that they might regret, but they also might meet the love of their life. They might have a good experience. I mean, I, I see what the, I see what the critics of the sex positive movement are pointing at. There's a lot of bad sex in the world. There was a lot of bad sex in the world before the sex positivity movement came along. Right. I mean, there's I mean, there's a certain like there's a certain group of people who you know wants to return to the 1950s, and it's like where everyone was on barbiturates, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, wh why would you want that? <laughs> unless, you know, I mean, unless that's, I think that's great. But I, I think they, I think that there's a, the argument, there's a, there's a social utility for stigma. And I, I really do think of it often. I, ha I have a very traditional old world mom. And I mean, all the advice she gave me was like, I think the advice that most people's grandparents would give them, which is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the stuff that I think maybe you were reacting against, right? And I think that the argument is like, that's what keeps people safe, even if it's uncomfortable and even if there's collateral damage along the way. It also keeps people potentially feeling unfulfilled. If you right, but is fulfillment the ultimate, like is sexual fulfillment more important than social stability? Do we have to choose? 
between those two things? These people would say, yes, uh, if you look at the fertility rate, the marriage rate, uh, how you know, porn adult people are. Um, I, I was looking at some statistics this morning. I saw something crazy, like overall amount of sex has gone down among Zoomers, but the sex that they are having is unfulfilling casual sex, right? So if that, that's from the Kinsey Institute, um, if that's to be believed, right, that's, that's the nightmare. All right, you have an advice column of your own, so let's hear you give some advice of your own. Hi, Dan Magnum Sub here. Emphasis on the sub. I am now two years on the outside of a eight-year-long toxic, emotionally abusive relationship with an addict. Freedom is sweet. I mean, dating like it's a hobby, like come spring up, absolutely, like here for it, here for all the things. How do I tell somebody to please go away? when the vibe is not what I want. So it's like, I've had like fulfilling conversations with people and then I'm like, yeah, come over, let's make out. Like, I'm not gonna fuck yet because I like uh, enjoy the buildup. And then like, when we get to the makeup, make out part, it's not great. How do I say, hey, I didn't love that and I don't have the emotional capacity or availability to teach you or be interested in teaching you how I like to be made out with. This is enough of a red flag for this experience to end. I mean, I could just like say that and then it would be done. But as a recovering codependent and people pleaser person, it's really hard for me to, it's fucking, it's so annoyingly hard for me to figure out how to say, um, I don't like that. Please go home now. This comes up with women a lot. I hear this question from women all the time. I don't want to be doing this, but I can't bring myself to tell him that. I think it's great though that she's not just having sex with these guys anyway. She she sets it up like this is casual, you know, whatever. Um, it Come springa, I think is what she says. But I mean, it sounds like pretty sensible, right? Like she's she is drawing a hard line at making out. And I think if you are brave enough to stop it at kissing, then like you can also just stop the train altogether. You know, it's boring, but it's it, she's already halfway there. I, I think this is something that has come up a lot in the last like decade, our conversations about Me Too and about, you know, men bumbling into situations with women where the women feel implicitly threatened. They feel coerced because it can be difficult for a woman to say no to a man. There is, for many women, quite reasonably, a fear of male violence in response to rejection. We've all heard stories about women being murdered on street corners because they turned somebody down and men need to know to factor that into their behaviors that they need to solicit the no they need to invite the no they need to make sure that the woman that they're with feels comfortable telling them no very explicitly women also need to be more comfortable when they can saying no laura kipnis said part of what we're doing right now is trying to get men to unlearn how they're socialized and the flip side of that is getting women to unlearn how they're socialized and to say no when it's no. And this, I think, is an example of that. She wants it to end and she's not ending it. I think, like, wouldn't the violence also come when she, you know, after saying I'm stopping at making out? That That's why it feels like she's already there. She's so, she's so close. She just needs to bite the bullet. She says she's a people pleaser. Women are socialized to be people pleaser, particularly people pleasers of men people. What do I do about that? As a sex positive advice relationship sex monkey, what do I do to empower women to say no when they want to say no? It, it, it blows my mind that so often, here I am, this fag, like I have relationships with men. And sometimes it feels like 30% of my job is telling women to go ahead and say no to straight guys. 
I mean, I think that you you do a decent job at that, right? Like, you know, dump the motherfucker already is one expression of that. I think it's, you know, it doesn't have to be anything like fancy. You just have to, you know, validate what we all already know. I mean, this is another thing you say, people write to you asking for permission. And I think this is a case of asking for permission. A lot of times people write to me asking for permission to do the things that they want to do. You know, we talk about, you know, those environments where everybody's drinking as if it's about men being predatory and tricking women into drinking with them. When the reality is some women drink in those environments to lower their own inhibitions because there's things they want to do that they have a difficult time giving themselves permission to do when they're not disinhibited by drugs or alcohol themselves. I think it's dangerous often for women to drink in rooms full of strange and unpredictable testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Men are terrible. I also think it's naive to pretend that women don't have their own motives for going into a space like that and drinking. I, th I think that's true. I also think like we have to ask women, why do you want to do these things? Like often I, I find like when people write into me, when they're drinking to like send that text message or to, you know, come on to that guy, it's because they know that it's wrong, you know, and they know that like they shouldn't do it even for something as, you know, benign, at least compared to violence as embarrassment. Right. So it's like you, you know, what's the right choices. It's, it's not just about, I need the, the courage. But if you never make the move, liquid courage, they sometimes call it, if you never make the move, are you ever going to get what you want? You must know people who like screwed up the courage to send the inappropriate text. And that's how they met the father of their children. That's how they met sure. the woman they've been married to for 20 years. Like, what's the message of the sexual counter revolution besides like, don't and you shouldn't. And also the sexual counter revolution likes to point to the fact that young people are having a lot less sex now than they used to. And that's a problem. And the solution is even less because people shouldn't make moves. No, I mean, the so the sexual counter revolution is that and that's going back to like a patriarchal system. People are getting married. There's there's spaces for people to meet opposite sex partners. Matchmaking comes back, right? There's all of these other social guardrails that they that that particular school of thought want that you don't endorse. Um, I don't I don't know, right? I, I I really I really don't. I mean, the advice that I give though is I have to consider what is the world that we are actually living in. I understand you make the world you want to see, whatever, but like if someone's asking me for advice and they need it tomorrow, what are they actually asking me? I can't say, um, and I, I might not even want to say, you know, just never have sex again. But I'm sort of like an enlightened centrist on this, I think. Like I I think Louise Perry and, and her ilk have a lot of really great, smart things to say and their vision of the world isn't quite as backwards as you might imagine. So before I let you go, can we talk about something that I'm often criticized about by people who are think sex positivity is a problem. And this criticism has gone back for 25 years, predates the whole sexual counter-revolution movement, which is GGG, good giving and game, uh, which has been my advice to, to people forever, that those are the things that you should be for your sex partner and expect from your sex partner. Good in bed, giving of equal time, equal pleasure, and game for anything, dot, 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 within reason. And what's reasonable is subjective and personal and everyone's allowed to have boundaries. That's always been my argument. And I hear, and I've heard from feminists, including sex positive feminists back in the day that GGG was coercive and it resulted in a lot of women doing things. Kink, you brought up kink earlier that left them feeling uncomfortable and used. 
So was GGG a bad idea? Was it a bad meme that I created? It, it was weaponized. I think you, and you, you've admitted to that, right? You know, I, I think it has some good intuitions, but it's the game part, right? That's the part that's the issue. The, the one that was always qualified with within reason. Yeah. And because what does that mean? That's, you know, what, what is within reason? Well, I think your boyfriend wants you to pee on him. Maybe that's a reasonable thing that you could wrap. Your, your boyfriend's a foot fetishist, wants to kiss your feet. Maybe that's a perfectly reasonable thing that you could wrap your head around. Your boyfriend wants you to shit in his mouth. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> that's like not reasonable for anybody who's not right. into that. I call those things fetishes too far. But, but, but like people, I want, I want relationships to succeed. And the more sexually compatible two people become over time, the more they grow together and the closer they grow together sexually, the likelier that relationship is to succeed. And that's all I'm rooting for. I've always said, you know, it's something that's going to leave you curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom afterwards crying. Don't do it. That's not, and whatever it is, that's not within reason. So there's two, there's two things here. One, people are awful at determining what they're really comfortable with, as I'm sure you know. They're really, really bad at it. And that's why we need the second thing that people who are more sexually conservative are promoting, which is uh, more coordination. So like a, a value system where we all can agree what's good and what's bad. Can we all agree to that? With some some tweaks and, and but where, who, who's going to be on that committee that makes those right. determinations? I, these are as as a internet culture writer and 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 weirdo. Uh, these are questions I can't answer. I can only say this is what people are talking about. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, on the one hand, I'm afraid of what those answers might be. On the other hand, this idea that we can shame and stigmatize people out of kink, as if shame and stigma aren't often the the wellspring, the headwaters of kink, the, the inspiration for kink. Most people's kinks are eroticized fears, self-loathing. Maybe there'll be a kink renaissance if it's pushed underground. <laughs> oh, there absolutely will be. If the <laughs> sexual counter-revolution works and people are told, all right, you maybe were fantasizing about bondage or spanking from before you even were aware of your sexual orientation. That's a terrible thing. and makes you a terrible person. You should never do it and you're a sicko, that is not the cure that people think. I mean, I think there's another cure. argument here where it's like if people aren't even exposed to it, right, and there's it's less readily available. Okay, so I'm going to give you the last word. You were a longtime listener of the Savage Lovecast. Um, you used to think I was right about a lot of things. Now you think I'm wrong about a lot of things. Here's a, like, a clear minute for you to say whatever it is you want to say to anybody out there who still thinks I'm right about most things. I, so I, I definitely think people should be a little bit more conservative about kink and, and what sexual acts and sexual fetishes they explore. I think doing things for the experience could can you know be harmful. You, you, there is such a thing as too many sexual partners. You can burn out. You can get cynical. And the problem is that it's really, really hard to predict where your personal line is. So better to move slow and miss out on sex for the experience than to, to traumatize yourself, which I think a lot of people have. Oh, my God. I wanted to let you have the last word, and I'm physically incapable of... Just say it. Say it. Uh, Go for it. it. I don't disagree with anything that you just said. Like, I'm the guy who's been quoting Mary Poppins for the entire time I've been writing Savage Love. Enough is as good as a feast. You can suck too much dick that, you know, the more people you bring into your bedroom and the more people you let into your body, the higher your odds of the sexually transmitted infections, the higher your odds of going home as a friend of mine did 
28 years ago with Jeffrey fucking Dahmer. Like, I think we have to use our judgment. And I think sometimes the right call is to pass. I'm not down with the stigmatizing kink. Like people come together over shared sexual interests and fall in love. And I know people who are insanely kinky and do insanely kinky things and are insanely in love with each other. And so I don't want to pathologize kink. And I would add that people get raped in the missionary position. That's that's true, but it, I mean, it, it's it's just how it it's just what the knock on effects are. I mean, if you know, a real a real last word might be you you are probably as misunderstood as some of the writers that I've referenced. Um, and you know, I'm also misunderstood because I talk about the conversation without necessarily promoting anything myself. I mean, there's a few things, right? Obviously, but all I think maybe the re, you know like the, the real takeaway is. Everyone who has a platform has to be very cautious because words and intent don't always stay together. Catherine D., thought leader, thought observer in the <laughs> sexual counter-revolution on Substack at defaultfriend.substack.com, on Twitter at default underscore friend. You also write an advice column that I think is terrific. Thank you. Um, and shout out to my co-columnist, Delicious Tacos. <laughs> Delicious tacos. I, I think it's one of the best sex advice columns out there. Without qualification, I won't qualify that. And I'm, uh, I was glad to see that you're reviving it. And where can people find it? They could find it right on my Substack. Defaultfriend.substack.com. Catherine D., thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Hey, Dan. I am a 29-year-old bisexual woman living in the Western United States. My boyfriend of two years and I decided that while we've talked for a long time about potentially being open, you know, sometimes seeing people one-on-one, sometimes threesomes. You know, I recently met a woman that I've been dating and hooking up with casually. And this past week, he found someone on the field that he wanted to potentially sleep with one-on-one or as a threesome. Basically, in the span of a day, he went to full-blown, like, sending her dick pics, sexting. She's coming to his dick pics. And I was at work and then at the gym and had no idea it got that serious that fast. I had known that he was talking to her and seen some of their earlier messages um, and even chatted with her a little bit on field. But yeah, it got really real, really fast. And this would be the first time, you know, he has done this with another woman. And I'm just curious, do you know what the success rates are on open relationships, at least on hetero open relationships? Because I feel like there's... You know, I listen to your podcast and and other resources, and it can kind of feel like everyone's doing it, but him sexting her like that wasn't okay with me and wasn't how I thought we had set our boundaries, even though he thought that was okay. So I'm kind of like, does this really work? I mean, I'd rather be with this person long term than, you know, have a couple of fun nights here and there. What are your thoughts, Dan? So your relationship is already open. You're dating and sleeping with regularly another woman. You're both on field. You're on field. Your boyfriend's on field. Field is a, as they say, location-based hookup app, kind of like Grindr. 
mostly for straight people who are seeking casual sex, who are swingers, who are polyamorous and seeking other partners to join the polycule. And, you know, if you meet somebody on field, you've already both identified yourselves as interested primarily in neurotic connection, a sexual connection, something casual, but something, you know, hot and sexy. And so it doesn't surprise me that your boyfriend met this woman on field, let you know that he met this woman on field, began to chat with this woman. You chatted with this woman. And then he quickly, you know, the conversation, things escalated quickly, went to swapping dirty pics and fantasies. That's what people get on field for. And not just the dirty pics and fantasy swapping, but the actual hooking up and getting together. Now, I'm not coming down on you. Sometimes when we open a relationship, it can dredge up unexpected emotions. And you are having a feeling about this. There's something about seeing your boyfriend experience this kind of intensity of attraction for some other woman that's making you feel insecure. Not about the choices you two had talked about making, opening the relationship, but about a choice that you two had already made to open the relationship. I refer back to the evidence I presented earlier in my argument. You're fucking somebody else already. Your boyfriend is now guilty of, at least in front of you, being a little too excited for your comfort about fucking somebody else. How do you process that? How do you handle that? Well, I think you have to acknowledge that your feelings are your feelings, but perhaps a little unfair, perhaps evidence of an insecurity. Just because it's unfair or you're feeling a little insecure, that doesn't get your boyfriend off the hook. If he loves you and you are each other's primary partners, you don't want to be with somebody who weaponizes their insecurities to control you, but you definitely want to be the kind of partner who takes their, you know, primary partner's insecurities into account and doesn't do things that unnecessarily sandpaper those nerves, that unnecessarily make their partners feel insecure. You have to maybe understand, of course, that if your boyfriend meets somebody online that he's excited about having casual sex with, that's going to lead to conversations about the casual sex that those two people might like to have. You can know that that is probably going on without having to be confronted with the reality of it, without seeing the text messages, without having to hear about it. If hearing about it makes you feel bad, it's kind of a soft DADT arrangement. You know it's going on. You don't want to hear the details because you have these feelings. Now, it may be that what you've discovered stepping on this landmine is that open relationships aren't right for you or that a relationship that's open on both sides isn't right for you. Obviously you're comfortable having sex with other people. You don't think having sex with this other person means you love your boyfriend less. You don't feel any less attached to him, but maybe you're one of those people who you can do it, but they can't. Now to some that would feel unfair, if your boyfriend doesn't think that's unfair, if your boyfriend is up for a one-sided open relationship, okay, 
maybe that could be the agreement. But if he's not up for a one-sided open relationship, if you're going to get to sleep with other people, he wants to sleep with other people too, then it's going to have to be open on both sides or closed on both sides if indeed you can't do this. You say you want some stat. I'm not aware of much research into the long-term stability of open v closed relationships. The one study I cite frequently is out of the Netherlands where they looked at same-sex, opposite-sex relationships. And what they found was gay male relationships were the least likely to be monogamous, but were the most stable. Straight couples, less likely to be non-monogamous. A little more stable, same-sex lesbian couples, most likely to be monogamous, least stable. Gay men divorced at a low rate. Straight people divorced at a slightly higher rate. Lesbian couples divorced at the highest rate when you compare those three groups. I think that's an indication that some allowance for outside sexual contact can be, in a long-term relationship, stabilizing. But it depends on the people in that relationship. If it destabilizes you, if your boyfriend is sleeping with someone else or panting after someone else, lusting after someone else, taking it too far, too fast for your comfort, all right, then it's not going to be a stabilizing influence in your life. If you two would like to stay together, if you want to make it work, soft DADT, you having more control, maybe, and maybe that's something that your boyfriend would be willing to allow or cede that control to you that you find the other people that you're going to sleep with together and you sometimes get to bang this woman on the side, but if he's with another woman, you're there and you're regulating the flow, regulating the speed. It's your foot on the gas pedal, your foot on the brake pedal when you want to slow things down. If your boyfriend's down with that, you could possibly make that work. But all I see your boyfriend being guilty of right now is being excited about sleeping with somebody else, which is something that you are already doing. And presumably, you were excited about that prospect at the start, too. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Breezy Carter tweets, hubby likes shoving soft-boiled eggs up my vagina. I can hold three. And then I squat down and lay the eggs like a hen and hubby eats them, coated with my juices, smile emoji. Savage Lovecast listener T.O. Hedonist tagged me into the conversation asking what would at fake Dan Savage say? Well, at fake Dan Savage would say, don't put food in your vagina. I would also say don't use insertable sex toys that do not have flared bases. But if you're going to put eggs in your vagina and you have the kind of control that you can push one out on command or on cue or the kind of control where you can push a cue ball out on cue, I've seen that. I would use, if you're going to go with eggs, hard boiled eggs for that, not soft boiled eggs. You want fully cooked eggs, no runny yolks, less risk of salmonella poisoning just to be on the safe side. Of course, insertables designed to be used as insertable sex toys with flared bases. That is the safest side to be on. Rohan Anand tweets as a longtime Magnum sub listener, the Savage Lovecast. I am appreciative of at fake Dan Savage for regularly bringing on public health experts to discuss questions pertaining to monkeypox for all genders, sexual orientations, and expressions. Kudos. 
Thank you very much, Rohan. And I'd like to express my appreciation for all the public health experts who've come on the show to share their expertise regarding monkeypox with my listeners, Dr. Ina Park, Dr. Carlton Thomas, and health reporter Benjamin Ryan. Finally, Billy Presida of the Man Whore podcast tweets, makes sense. I was so turned on by the January 6th hearings. Turns out they were using at fake Dan Savage's dirty talk advice. My dirty talk advice once more for self-conscious dirty talk beginners. Tell them what you're going to do. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them what you just did. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I fucked the shit out of you. So many people have such a hard time getting started with dirty talk. And if you just narrate the action, talk about what you're doing, it's actually surprisingly easy. All right. Thanks to everybody who tweeted about the show this week. Thanks to everybody who posted to your other social media platforms, to TikTok and Instagram and Facebook about the Savage Lovecast. We really appreciate how our listeners help spread the word about the show. And now let's get to those listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a response call to the caller in episode 825, who is finding slightly too aggressive the dirty talk she's doing in her native tongue. I am also a polyamorous multilingual person. Uh, I am French and have two American partners. They are absolutely thrilled when I dirty talk in French to them. Uh, they don't understand it, so they're not finding it too aggressive. I'm the only one who can find it sometimes slightly too aggressive. I have been at some stage a bit uncomfortable by it too. But I've learned that it's only me who understands it anyways. And if it's coming out of me, it's because I want it. It's because I'm, I'm having these thoughts and these words and I'm turned on by it. So I've learned to let go the uh, feeling of finding it too aggressive and embracing it, embracing the dirtiness of it, embracing how turned on I am by it. And yeah, it just, once you accept it, it's just so good and so enjoyable. So yeah, try to accept it, enjoy it. And if it's really, really a bother, then just don't do it. Hey, Dan, this is the caller from episode 825. I called in about my partner who wasn't able to come any longer. You were right about my marriage. I shouldn't have married a woman. Our sex life after our last child was non-existent. And that made her really miserable. And I feel horrible about it. You made me see that I made a wrong decision. But 30 years ago, it wasn't as easy to come out as it is today. My only consolation is I have three great kids that I love and I will cherish for the rest of my life. This is for the caller in episode 825 who um, was tempted to contact her abusive ex-husband's ex-girlfriend. I agree with everything that Dan said. I very well could be the ex-girlfriend that you talked about. I don't think I am because I'm definitely not Facebook friends with him anymore, but the years and circumstances really line up. So I just wanted to tell you if it helps in any way. You're absolutely not crazy. He was probably awful to her too. That's probably just who he is. And you've done the right thing to leave. If you were to contact her, it might give her some sort of reassurance that she's not crazy, but what it also might do is re-traumatize her for something that she's trying to forget. So that's it. I hope that's somewhat validating. Good luck. You're better off without him. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? 
use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. The Hump 2022 Fall Tour kicks off September 10th in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're also hosting a special encore screening of Hump 2022 in Seattle on that night. Then it's Pittsburgh's turn to get humped, followed by Cleveland, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Atlanta, Victoria, and Los Angeles. Hump 2022 is also streaming online. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets to a screening in a theater or for a link to a streaming show. And just a reminder for Magnum Subs, Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout for Magnum subscribers, is next Thursday, September 1st at noon Pacific. So mark your calendars and be on the lookout next Thursday morning for that Zoom link, and I will see you at Sack Lunch. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Catherine D on Twitter at Default underscore Friend. And follow the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter at LoveCast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy, we'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for telling me.